In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is uh, Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Well Standard Podcast. I am on video right now. If you guys want to go check out uh, the video of the podcast, just head over to YouTube uh, forward slash paradigm life. But I am with a, may seem like a familiar face, but uh, this is my brother, my little brother by two years, uh, Tom. And I wanted to have Tom on because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, mentorship. We're also going to talk about business rhythm and also uh, ways in which you can identify friction in business rhythm to capitalize on opportunity. I'm going to give you guys an idea in just a second about why I chose this topic for the week, especially as we're talking about entrepreneurs. But first, you know, the book, we still have our free website up, so go check that out. It's freebook.headsortailsiwin.com. You can get a free copy. All you have to do is pay for shipping. So go ahead over there. Also, if you guys like what you're hearing, if you've enjoyed this season, then go head over to iTunes. They've actually changed up a bunch of stuff with uh, with the podcast. And uh, so... Go ahead over there and uh, and give us a review. We would really appreciate that. Now, as you can see, if you guys are watching on video, we are in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I guess it's not Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It's Yarmouth, uh, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. This is where my brother and I uh, grew up during the summers. And we have, I think it's been, what, 15 years or 16 years straight that we've been out here with our kids. And uh, it's an amazing place. So we're recording from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. But uh, I think it's going to be important for Tom to be on this episode because I'll let him introduce himself in a second. But he is in a, a different industry, and I would say not necessarily the entrepreneur type of role, but definitely entrepreneurial based on what he's done uh, with his career in law. So why don't you take a second and introduce yourself to the audience and tell them about your background? Sure. Sure. So I'm an attorney by trade. That's my profession, as Pat mentioned. I, I was in private practice for about 10 years with. Uh, a couple of the country's largest health law firms. That's where I focus. My practice has always been representing hospitals and, and health systems for the most part on uh, transactional regulatory matters. And, and just recently, as of about a year and a half ago, I went in-house to, to a uh, midsize or regional health system uh, located or, or headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but it has operations in Denver, Kansas, and in Montana. So, you know, a, a little bit about kind of my path is, again, it sounds like this is an audience of entrepreneurs, and that may, I may not make sense to be speaking to that crowd, given I've taken a little bit more of a, a traditional route uh, in my career. But I would say that, you know, some of the principles that I've seen applied in the entrepreneur space, uh, you, you can apply and be equally as successful 
in the legal space as well and in some of the more traditional settings. And on that note, I mean, I did start in the traditional law firm setting, but I also, for one of the firms that I worked for the longest, I opened their Denver office. So it was, a, in some cases, a startup, a new market, a new client base, a new potential for folks to, to come in both to, to join me to practice, but also to receive services in that area. So again, in, in that setting, it was part of a larger law firm. We had to act like entrepreneurs in the way that we were trying to develop business, uh, bring people along, and, and then also uh, refine our craft. So it was a great experience in doing that, and I can I can certainly talk a little bit about that today, and and some of the different principles we applied in doing that. But that's you know I I look at the conversations we've had over the years, and with you know what you see typically in in the corporate world, and I would say the you know the legal world is business that is you know essentially in a chokehold because of clinging to old habits, ideas, ways of doing things. I remember when you started up your Denver office. It was interesting because you hit the ground running and you did things that other attorneys weren't willing to do, go out and do business development, establish new relationships. And what was cool is that even though you were in Denver, you were out in Salt Lake quite a bit and were able to establish relationships with really big hospital networks out there that already had representation. But you were able to go out and sponsor dinners, do golf tournaments, network. And ultimately, I would say most business uh, especially when you're doing business to business transactions, there tends to be frustration at times, whether it's lack of experience, whether it's timeliness, whether it's focus, whether it's organization. And you were able to capitalize on relationship opportunities because you had done a lot of that networking. And when those frustrating things happened, they remembered you and remembered your firm and subsequently started to do more business with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. talk about like, where did that come from? As you opened the Denver office, was it your idea to do the business development or was that something that was in you know, the hierarchy up the chain was insistent on? Yeah. And I think it starts with, you know, there's this, I think a fundamental perception, particularly of lawyers, right? That there's just this body of legal work that just sits out there waiting for some lawyer to do it. You know, you go to a firm and you, there's just a pile of work on your desk and you just are there for hour after hour doing it. And that's just not the case. I, in some cases it may be, but in mine, it never was. It was a you know, here's an opportunity to develop a new office, a new service. And sure, we've got some work for you, but you're really going to have to go find that on your own. And again, it's similar to any startup, any entrepreneur situation where you've got a new product or a new service and you're trying to find buyers and, mm -hmm. and you're trying to sell that to them, grow your business and, and all of that. And that's exactly what this was. So in my case, it was sure I had some foundational clients, I developed relationships, so I had some work, but it was going into those markets and uh, in, it, well, into the, in, we were in, I was in Denver for the most part, but in that market, developing the relationships, pitching the service that we provided, why we do it different, how we do it different, and why we could do it better. Um, and then obviously expanding into new markets and doing that too. But, uh, you know, to your point, sometimes I drop into Salt Lake and I mean, I just have a handful of lunches or dinners scheduled and, and no real prospects, but you just have to kind of grind and make those contacts, you know, time after time with people. And when you're given that opportunity, knock it out of the park and you know, it seems like a simple recipe, but I feel like that's a recipe for success in really any industry, right? I mean, it's having a relationship, it's building that relationship. It's once you get a bite based on that relationship, you know, being responsive, doing a good job. It's not rocket science in a lot of cases. It's astounding to me in any industry, you know, how unresponsiveness, how lack of communication or apathy or something like that can, it can be pervasive. And so for the folks, that are willing to put in the work and mm -hmm. to develop those relationships and to focus on those simple things, yeah. how much success you can yield by just doing that. 
let's maybe segue into a few topics. So, th- so I want to do this podcast with my brother because as I was thinking about what to speak on this week, we had a couple of guests. We had some travel conflict. And so uh, we're kind of doing this episode on the fly. But some interesting things happened to me this week. I had a an old business coach of mine reach out and he is an incredibly successful entrepreneur. He started several businesses. Uh, he ran a, over a thousand person publishing company. And he and another individual uh, coached me for a few years. And that coaching really helped me understand you know, the importance of business rhythm and uh, organization. And this business coach reached out because he's starting a podcast and wanted to know a couple of the ways in which his coaching impact on my business, some of the things that we're using right now. So I, it caused me to reflect on a few things over the last week or so. And so I wanted to talk about that, but I also felt it would be appropriate to run what I had learned as some of the friction points, the inefficiencies, the blind spots of, of my business. I wanted to know what, you know, from a corporate standpoint, if there were some similarities. And so I didn't really brief my brother on any of this stuff, so it might totally backfires. We'll see. But, you know, one of the one of the things that's really connected with me in regards to this idea of growth as well as business progression is the whole plus minus equal idea. So I don't, you don't know if you know about this, but plus minus equal is essentially yeah, where you stand. There's always somebody that you can look to as a mentor, someone that's doing more than you, someone that has more experience than you. Also, you have minus, which is someone that is kind of coming up the ranks that you can mentor and teach. And then the equal is essentially having somebody that is in a very similar situation as you so that you remain uh, competitive. You have that type of edge. And so I consider the mentors that I've had, you know, this individual in particular, as someone that has kind of gone down the path that I was going that could help me see, you know, some of the pitfalls, some of the things that I would be approaching and how to essentially set up my business, set up my structure in a way where I, I don't necessarily avoid them, but when they're presented, I can you know, essentially identify the opportunity and be able to you know, proactively respond as to impulsively react. So, so Tom, maybe talk, to, talk about the importance of mentors to you and then also your uh, ability to mentor others. I know that you've had, had kind of mentees and mentors throughout your career. Yeah, and it's 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 an interesting question, right? Because that you know, I think the whole mentorship thing, unless you're intentional and you seek out one that fits uh, what you're really looking for, it's really a a product of chance. So you know, my first partner that supervised me was very old school. It was a sink or swim, very little interaction with him. And, and at the time, I didn't think that's what I needed. In some cases, felt I wasn't getting what what I needed, and I had expressed that and. I, I can always remember where, you know, he would be in meetings all day and would have sent me a couple of things that he needed help with or questions he needed me to answer. And he'd get back to his office at the end of the hall and I'd kind of slowly pop my head out of my door in my office and I just gave him one look and I could tell he did not want to talk to me and I'd go right back <laughs> in my office and hold my questions till till the next day. But then there were also times, obviously, when it was late in the day and he was, he was in a good mood and we could talk through some things. But it was a very... A very sink or swim type relationship, as he explained it to me a few years ago when I ultimately transitioned from that firm and I came back eventually. But as I was departing, he said, you know, that was my style. My style was to, you know, give you as much as I, as you could handle and then see if you basically survived or if you thrived. And, you know, fortunately, I, I think I did okay. And I, I don't know, thrived is the right word, but I certainly didn't 
I didn't sink. And and as I looked back on that, and again in the in the moment, I kind of resented it a little bit. But as I look back at it, it did prepare me to in my career to deal with harder personalities, with not kind of the people that, for lack of better words, coddled you or protected you. Um, you know, and, and it helped me kind of again navigate some, some more difficult personalities, both internally at the other firms and, and uh, companies I worked with, but also externally as I negotiated with other parties with this difficult with difficult personalities just helped me uh, manage those. So I was very grateful in the end for that mentorship. So a little bit of a non-traditional path, but but I think those are important, right? Uh, you know, I, I think you can do two things. By chance, you can have the mentors that you get or assigned to you, and you kind of make do what you can and try to find the best benefit uh, that you can in those relationships. You got to understand the parameters of those mentors and how they operate and really try to leverage what benefit you can get from those relationships. And then I think the other way to approach it and I, is to seek mentors, not just in your companies or in your businesses, but around you are the one that Pat suggests this kind of plus ones that are in the industry. They say, you know, listen, they've, they've been successful and, you know, that's a path I want to follow. And, and you get in touch with them and establish that more informal mentorship path. And, you know, that's a little bit of a roll of the dice, right? Because they may have been really successful, but they don't want to, you know, teach anyone uh, or they don't have the patience. That's not their personality, but that's certainly something worth exploring. And as far as the minus one, I think my experiences with mentors or lack thereof, however you Kind of characterize it has really driven me to want to go above and beyond in terms of the the people that report to me and and that I work with on a daily basis and I've I've done that and in my current role part of the task that I was brought in to do uh, was to build a, an, an in-house department so and I did it in a in a what I would characterize as a vertical way so I you know I it, I'm the number two attorney in my company and I developed kind of layers beneath me and that's not necessarily to have a hierarchy for having a hierarchy sake but it's so that the people that people at certain skill levels could have access to uh, people that at higher levels with additional skills or experience that they can leverage or go to when they have challenge and also creates a path for those people to progress. And I have a, a particular attorney who, you know, she worked with me at the firm and then, um, you know, we worked a little bit together there and she ultimately left to go take an in-house role. And then I, I kind of stole her back from that role when I came in and I really had the opportunity to try to push her as hard as I can, but also be a mentor to her, we meet on a on a weekly basis and go through her projects. Any questions she concerns that she has, so and so, I try to push her as much as she can. And I I feel like she's progressed, or and she's given the feedback to me that she's certainly stretched the most that she can, but not to a point where she's put in a position that's going to compromise her success or or make it difficult for her to to be successful in her job. I think it's interesting when you look at uh, growth in general, just the principle of growth. You have an environment in which the growth is taking place, but I would say. The environment has to be conducive mm -hmm. to certain variables, right? And I think one of them is pressure, right? Yep. Because if you don't have pressure to perform, then you're not going to be pushed. But you also have, you know, this notion of, of team where you can push the limits, but yet, you know, the, the fear of failure, it's not like you've burned all boats and you're forced to do it, even though that could be a viable strategy. You still have team members. You're talking, I mean, obviously, one of the things we didn't talk about with regards to your background is, I mean, you've, you've been part of like... Have you, like hundred, uh, several hundred million dollar mergers, acquisitions, buyouts, and have you done any billion dollar ones yet? Mm, no, nothing. Right. So, but these are big transactions. Whether it's hospitals merging, whether it's buying private practices, whether it's you know the merging of private practices. So these are very important transactions, especially in the healthcare world, the medical world, because there's so much uh, regulation. So the pressure, you know, is kind of almost baked into the process. And so the idea of having a vertical, I would say, is really you know, intriguing to me because 
you have an environment where you can't make many mistakes, mm -hmm. right? The mistakes have pretty big consequences, right? And opportunity costs. So you're essentially entrusting, you know, someone to do work, be in that environment, but yet you have kind of parameters built in so that, you know, they can fail, but the failure is, is going to get caught, right. right? So that there aren't these like dire consequences of, you know, not dotting the I's or crossing the T's and what that would do to the specific transaction, you know, uh, details, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And then so a couple of thoughts on that, you know, I, the first to your point, that's exactly you're trying to create fail safes yep. uh, within your structure so that, again, people can be pushed and can go to a limit. Uh, yet, you know, they're not too far out there that they're exceeding their bounds or, or getting and you're right in the legal industry, if you provide the wrong legal advice, it could potentially end up with uh, pretty significant consequences. So uh, we, we don't have a lot of room for error in most cases. So that that is certainly one. And you also met, mentioned, you know, the concept of team and culture. I, you know, I, I think those can be buzzwords and cliches for different companies or, you know, you're, if you're reading kind of inspirational books and all that, but they really matter. I, again, I, I think about the department I came in and one of, as we developed the structure, one of the things we had to do was develop a culture, right? A culture where people were, were empowered to collaborate with each other, where there was good communication and some folks were good at it, some weren't, but as you develop that culture, as you kind of lead in that respect, and that's how you act, people tend to fall in a lot of cases. And to your point on a transaction, on a hard issue, on something, if people are aligned and communicating, your ability to resolve any given issue or get through a transaction is increased significantly as opposed to if you've got internal dynamics or cultural barriers, it just makes the, the, the transaction itself could be hard and now you're making it even more hard because of the way that you are operating internally. So that's a an incredibly important thing and sometimes very difficult based on the personalities that you have uh thing to emphasize within an organization mm -hmm. in order for it to be successful doesn't matter how good the product is or the service or what you're doing if your culture isn't good sure you may have short-term success in some respects but i i think you certainly disadvantage your long-term prospects yeah i think unconscious it's interesting unconsciously I think human beings make judgment about who they want to do business with right they don't sit down and say here's how i want to do business but I think the unconscious side of them is looking right for what culture is, looking for what the relationship will be like, especially at, at those levels. At smaller levels, I think you can probably get away with it. At the same time, when you're talking about big transactions, the big you know corporate world, and I would say in, in some cases, small business where you're merging or doing joint ventures, right? Understanding that there is that unconscious side that's looking for, okay, what is this relationship going to be like? And I know that it's not necessarily with one person, it's not with Tom, but it's with his office, it's with his team. And I remember, you know, the conversations we've had over the years is, you know, you've been at a, a couple, two different firms before you went to, before you went to the, you know, in-house at this healthcare network or hospital network. Talk about where you saw, you know, in these big organizations, some of the, some of the unintended consequences of not necessarily bad culture, but let's say maybe mediocre, stagnant culture. Because if you're not growing, you're dying, right? There's not this like neutral place that you can just stay in. Right. It's the law of nature compels you to grow. Right. So maybe talk about that briefly. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it does have consequence. So I think the, the most apparent consequence is always in people leaving. Right. Yeah. I mean, people, good leave, people, good people, leave. You, lo you lose good people. Right. And in and, and, and the firms that I've been in, in some cases, it's to another firm. In other cases, it's to a, a client. Right. They go in house and such as what I did. And, you know, some of the attorneys in the firm might chalk that up to, well, that's good. He went, you know, he or she went to a client and now we'll get business from them. But in a lot of cases, those employees uh, are disgruntled. They don't, or they just don't look at the fact that, hey, if the firm, if that person was a really good person and a good asset to the firm and they left, 
you know, did we do something wrong? So I think there's definitely a consequence in that. And you're in that that means something, right? If if a small or a large company has put resources and time into developing an individual and they become a good asset, you lose that. That's tangible capital to the company. You know, maybe not in terms of dollars, but that's capital, that's time that's been invested and put into that person that you just now lost and are now going to have to invest in someone new. So I think, you know, the more we see movement in any industry right now, the the more people realize that that's certainly not a good thing uh, all around when a person leaves. And I'd say the other effect that I've seen of or consequences of some poor cultures or some idiosyncrasies that weren't necessarily productive in a, in a firm or in a corporation is just uh, morale. But you want people showing up, you want them making an effort, you want them engaged, you want them invested in the business. And when they're not getting the mentorship, when the culture of the, the department or the company or the corporation is not good, uh, their ability to be positive and to work hard is, is significantly diminished. And, and you need those people, particularly at the leadership level, to show up and influence others and to set a good tone. And if they can't do that, you know, you're going to see some of the foundations of a company crumble because the people are the foundation in a lot of cases. I want to kind of continue on this path, but I want to kind of just clarify and maybe solidify some of the context. So from the business coaches that I brought on, and right now I actually have two business coaches, uh, both happen to be women. And, and I did that uh, intentionally because it's provided a different perspective for me. All my business coaches of the past have been, have been male. I'm not going to necessarily get into that right now, but I wanted to get into really some of the things I thought about when it came to this particular business coach and reaching out <laughs> to me and me you know, going through our notes, going through our sessions over the last uh, several years. I stopped coaching with them about a year ago. And it really caused me to reflect on some of the main things that impacted my business. And this is where we'll kind of go back to this this uh, kind of narrative that we've been on right now with you know, culture and team. So one of the biggest things that I learned from them, it was one of the first things they told me, which is the objective of the leaders is to do uh, nothing. So what that means is when he was coaching me, what he was trying to say, at least how I uh, interpreted it and thought about it over the years, is that having a good team in place allowed me to do what the leader does, which is maintain the psychology of the team. I learned that the chokehold of, of all business really comes down to the psychology of the leader uh, or leadership. And that's where you look at, you know, if you want growth in your business, the leadership first has to grow, expand their psychology, expand their understanding of how to take a team from one level to the next level. So it's caused me to reflect and it's allowed me to really restructure my role in a way where I'm performing actual leadership things, which is not something that I studied or you know just understood because I read a few books, but it's something I had to really work on which is connecting with people, building a culture, setting principles, setting values, and setting business rhythm, and then continually improving it. So, so Tom, maybe talk about that. I mean, obviously you've had some, you have a current leadership role being second in command at this network, but you also ran you know, a Denver office. You were a partner at the firm, which is based out of the Midwest. I mean, talk about the good leadership that you've seen, the bad leadership that you've seen, and then how you have essentially taken that information and honed in on your leadership style and how you're leading today. Yeah, no, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I think, you know, first of all, fundamental to all of this is, is a leader's understanding of what leadership is. And that may, you know, it might seem that that's intuitive, but I don't think it is in all cases, mm -hmm. right? I think people aspire to leadership or become leaders for various reasons, some because they want a title, 
and they want to tell people what to do, others because of pay. Um, there's just all, and others because they understand leadership and want to be in that role and influence people. So, so you're saying there's a difference between a leadership role and a leader? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt. And if there's something I've seen is many people put into leadership positions that don't know how to lead. So I think fundamental to any leader being successful is understanding what their role is. And you, you know, you talked about it and I've reflected on it over the years as well, because as a lawyer, you know, no one pays me to be a leader, you know, clients with particularly in private practice pay you, you know, for your work. So you have to work, fill hours and produce good work product and be competent with that. And then at the same time, I had kind of leadership roles as the managing partner of an office and and all of that stuff. So, the, you know, at some point I had to understand that in order for the office to be successful, I was going to have to take time additional to, you know, the legal work I was doing to really kind of step back and influence people in the office and, you know, see where their gaps were, what the gaps of the office were so that we could ultimately be successful as a team as opposed to just individuals. And that's really the plight of any law firm, right? You're incentivized as an individual for the most part to be successful, but not necessarily for the firm to be successful in all cases. So what I've really seen, and, and that kind of compelled me to actually go into an in-house leadership role, because I feel like there's a greater appreciation in, in some cases in the corporate world. Generally, they pay people to be leaders, right? So you're put in a leadership, maybe sometimes because of the skills that you bring, but also because they've recognized that you have leadership skills and you should be leading a team. And I struggled with that at first. So I said, you know, listen, why, why are you paying these people money to lead, right? I mean, they're you know, they should be actually doing something. I want them drafting an agreement or I want them at the table negotiating. But I've come to really appreciate that if the company or it be a big or small recognize that someone has a skill in influencing people and bringing them together as a team and helping them function at their highest level, you know, that is something worth paying for. And that's why you see, you know, you may have seen the news, the CEO of GE goes to be the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, where their product lines are entirely different. I mean, what they do, but what I've come to appreciate is some of these CEOs transfer industries where they have no experience. They're not getting paid because, you know, of their knowledge of that industry in, in certain cases, but their ability to lead and bring a company back from a certain situation that transcends industry. So I give those examples because, and going back to some of the points that you're making, because I do think the most effective leader kind of recognizes that, you know, what their role is and what they're there to do. And and then they get into the work of how they do that, right? How they influence people, you know, how they create rhythm within a department, within an organization so that people are functioning at their highest level, that they're happy, that they're getting the mentorship and the tools that they need to be successful. Because that stuff, I guess, early in my career, I thought was intuitive, but now I've come to appreciate it's not. And particularly as you grow the number of people in a company and a department, you know, that tone needs to be set by an individual and then kind of passed down to others so that, again, those constituencies can be successful. So w maybe what are uh, top, and you can do like bees like flying around us, sorry. What would you say are maybe like the top two to three like characteristics of a leader that you have tried to, to, to embody? Yeah. So I would say, first of all, they're the biggest character. They have an ability to be influential. And I use that word influence. And again, I know there's plenty of literature about this because I've seen some leaders just say, I've got a title. I'm going to tell people what to do and they're going to do it which I guess if we we're all robots, that would be a wonderful thing, but we're not. You need people to join your cause, to be on your side, to want to achieve the same objective you are. And in order to do that, that's influencing them. And it's kind of scoping out the personality and say, okay, what, what is it going to take for that person to, to, get, on, to get on board and to, to do what uh, we need them to do? And sometimes that's setting an example. So you do have to get your hands dirty a little bit and doing that. Once they see that, 
they will follow you or, or, or deploy other skills. And in some cases, they're not going to get there. And it comes down to that leader making the hard decision of letting that person go for the benefit of the department, which uh, or the corporation or the company, whatever it is. Um, so that's so I think inf in ability to influence is probably a, a big characteristic. And then humility is a, another big one that is huge for me, right? A leader who wants to put others before themselves, wants to see others succeed, wants to see the company succeed, that leader will be successful. Someone, and that's hard, and I can't say that I'm always the best at that. It's certainly something I work towards. But the humble leader, or the, we hear the servant leader, leader in some cases, I mean, those are the people that want to see other people succeed. And so they're the ones who will put in the work and will do the things necessary to try to accomplish something bigger than themselves. And so I think, uh, you know, certain, there's certain charismatic leaders throughout different industries that we hear about in the news and otherwise that they get big headlines or whatnot. But I've, again, and they may have had successful companies, but I go back to that. I, I think eventually those companies will stagnate if the ego gets too big, if that stuff gets too big, because they'll lose sight of kind of who really kind of is important to making sure that enterprise is successful. Yeah, I think it's like Confucius, but it's one of those kind of counterintuitive, like paradoxical ideas because a person looks at a leader and it's leaders the one that tells everybody what to do but that's not the case and there's a like i think it was confucius that said that leaders who are soft are strong right and it's the idea where they're able to essentially take the situation at hand take all the emotions involved and objectively or mm -hmm. as objective as possible analyze those and determine what to do right but in the end who is a person's you know, best asset and the number one thing in their life. It's, it's them. And if a leader doesn't understand that, then it's very difficult for them to get them to, to do things past a certain point, right? Yeah. From a long-term standpoint, being able to have lasting impact, lasting influence, you need to understand, you know, human psychology, what makes a person tick, and then, you know, evaluate if they're in, in the right role. Because that's another, we can probably <laughs> talk about that, which is mm. people that are in roles that they have no yeah. business being in, yeah. right? based on not necessarily based on them being incompetent uh well it could be but it's not because of them as a person it might be because of their experience it might be because of their conation their natural tendencies their strengths right but the, a leader i would say one of the biggest thing a leader can do is to get a team together identify certain strengths identify the roles where they're going to be able to operate efficiently and make an even greater impact than if it was just one or two people right now. Absolutely. All right. So let's maybe let's transition. We're, we're already kind of at the 30 minute mark. I want to talk maybe about one more thing. And this is something where this business coach really made me understand. It's something, it sounds so fundamental and, but yet I look at human nature and without this, I think people just get super frustrated and anxious and concerned, which if you combine all of those you know, things together, you have emotions that don't allow people to do very good work, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's the ability to create business, business rhythm. And it, you know, it's interesting, I've understood there's a kind of a brainwave pattern of your flow state. So it's right in between your alpha and your, and your theta. So there's this flow state where you're able to just have complete focus, you have no distractions, it's like you're in that zone. And I look at business rhythm and ideal business rhythm is, you know, creating the structure in which a team operates, which has that very flow like state. So with you, as you've, you know, maybe and I'm, dude, I'm like totally putting you on the spot with all these no, questions because we didn't prepare at all. Like talk about, you know, where you've seen clunky rhythm at maybe some of the previous firms where it was like stuff just didn't get done. And it wasn't because people were incompetent, but it was because 
like this person didn't know what that person was doing or what this step was, or there wasn't necessarily guidance, mm -hmm. right, by leadership. Maybe talk about some of the clunky situations, the friction you've seen in the past, and then also some of the good business rhythms, and then maybe how you've taken, you know, your new role the last year and a half and, you know, established your team and established its rhythm. You know, in terms of where I've seen kind of some clunkiness or some, I'd say, disruption in rhythm or, you know, barriers to establishing any rhythm to begin with is, again, it kind of goes back to these organizations that, you know, I've been either been involved with or they've been clients, whatever, where I've seen, you know, kind of a fractured state of operations and leadership. So, you know, there's certain functions within an organization that are just dissatisfying, right? Maybe it's marketing is always unresponsive and they don't send the right stuff or, you know, they're just not up to par as... Uh, uh, similar to kind of competing organizations or your HR function is, you know, is not helpful. So there are these constituencies or services that reside within a company that, that just seem to exist and no one seems to pay attention to them. So I think that's kind of that and that, get, that get, gets people frustrated and other things, you know, so that they can't do their jobs or it kind of ruins their day or again, you kind of get out of rhythm uh, of sorts. And so to me, I, you know, as, as, as I've seen organizations overcome that, it's really been around first identifying that, right? You've got to have the appropriate feedback loop and then whether it's leadership or operators that understand kind of how those different constituencies and the disruptions that they're causing are being disruptive. And, and let me step back for a second. That's hard, right? I mean, the things we're talking about right now are not intuitive for people. I keep on using that word as if kind of everyone speaks the same language. I, I don't think it is, mm -hmm. right? I, I think people complain about HR and most people, leaders and otherwise, say, yeah, whatever, that's HR. Or marketing, yeah, we'll fix that. But you know, we like our guy and that's our guy, right? And, and that's just how it is. So deal with it and, and kind of grow up. And I just think that's an antiquated philosophy. I think you need the more sophisticated leaders, the more sophisticated managers will step back and say, okay, as I look at the different pieces within my organization, where are the barriers, right? Where are the sources of frustration? And, yeah. And it's not just identifying and say, go fix that, right? It's in, again, we all have jobs. We all spend a lot of time and and so it's not like you can tackle it all in the, in the first place or in one single meeting or get together and everyone's, everyone's good and you've reestablished where you need to be. I mean, it's saying, okay, what, we've got one issue, we've got five or six issues and five or six kind of pieces that may be disruptive. Let's go take this one. Let's look at it. Let's fix it. And then we'll get to the others as well. So it's having a plan to do that. And we do just kind of an example. I just set this up a few weeks ago is we have some standing meetings now within our department, which we call a legal operations meeting. And we've done exactly that. We've said, what are the things in our day that are being challenging? Is it our contracting processes? Are our IT platforms conducive in helping us do the work that we do? And so we, this group of us are going to be meeting to identify those particular pieces that are creating barriers within our department. We're going to fix them, move on to the next one, and then the next one so that we can create those efficiencies and, and kind of create that rhythm that I think gives us the job satisfaction and allows us, gives us the tools that we need to be successful. Because so. I would say most people are over, become overstaffed because of bad rhythm. And yeah, bad yeah throw more people, throw, throw more, more people. people at it. And that's, it's, it's, I think to me, it's getting, I really identifying what the fix is. More yeah. people is the dumbest solution that, yeah. I, that I've seen as well. But it's really understanding the process, thinking through it, and then taking the steps to fix it. Yeah. I think a very well, I would say, created and then managed business process, your start to finish, whatever that flow looks like. And when there's handoffs, we have in between these impact points of each department or business unit, as you have handoff, right, it's the clear understanding mm -hmm. of both the party that's giving and the party that's receiving. Okay, that is typically where you find the most friction. Because if you don't have a clear understanding 
then it bottlenecks everything else going forward. If you have, you know, especially if you have like 10 processes, you know, during, you know, with, you know, through your business uh, process or your business flow. So maybe we'll end with this. I think looking at, you know, as you look at entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, interestingly enough, is finding friction, right? All wealth, all opportunity exists where there's friction, okay? Whether that's making travel more convenient, whether that's making uh, communication more convenient, entrepreneurs are always looking for friction. But what I find fascinating, and you know, it's very ironic, where uh, most entrepreneurial-driven businesses fail because of friction, right? Their own friction. And that is failure to really understand what the business process is and just, and just assume that everybody else knows what it is, but properly documenting it, properly managing it, improving it. And that requires, I would say, just a, a series of meetings and a series of reporting and objective measurements of what is expected, what is being handed off. And then the feedback loop that you, that you mentioned, Tom, is you know just as important in a very small two, three, four, five person office or five thousand firm. It, there's just more of it, but typically those rhythms are very, very much, very much the same. Uh, all right, so that's really all the time we have. There's a few other things I wanted to uh, get into, but I want to save that for another time. We got to get to our vacationing, or else our yeah. uh, wives are going to right. strangle us. But thank you guys uh, for listening. Uh, one of the announcements I forgot to mention. So if you guys are still listening. I did a really cool interview uh, down in Austin a few weeks ago with uh, Ryan Moran of Capitalism.com. So if you guys want to check out uh, his podcast, uh, which I believe is just the Capitalism podcast, it was a really fun interview. I think there's like a two-part two part episode. There's two episodes. They broke the interview into two parts. So go check that out. So it's Capitalism.com. Uh, All right, Tom. Thank you, right, brother. We could probably spend a few, few more hours talking about childhood memories and what led us to be kind of crazy yeah, that's the boys, crazy so. crazy business driven type of people all right, all right. thank you brother all right guys uh, we'll see you next time thanks thank you for listening to the wealth standard podcast be sure to visit the show's official website thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service guest opinions are their own if you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Whoa.